This event and its recording was provided free of charge to the community and the rest of the world. Invest in your Sadhgajarya by donating to Kalam today so that we continue to educate and facilitate many programs like this one. Please visit supportqalam.com and donate generously. Jazakallah khair. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Apologize for the slight delay. Inshallah, we're going to go ahead and get started and jump right in so that we can finish up, inshallah, um, what we wanted to talk about and present here before Salat al-Maghrib, inshallah. And uh, we hope to leave some time at the end also for any Q&A uh, that, inshallah, is possible. So... Um, first and foremost, as we kind of get the program started, just wanted to remind everyone and share with everyone, if someone's not already aware, that Alhamdulillah, um, you know, part of the kind of ecosystem that we've been able to foster and create here at the Qalam campus, it allows us to do a lot of different things and be able to serve the community in, a, in many, many different ways. Um, so Alhamdulillah, uh, something that we're going to try to coordinate a lot more often just so that we can inshallah serve the community in a very meaningful and fulfilling and diverse way uh, is to coordinate a lot of the different programs. So alhamdulillah, while we have this program going on here for the general community, uh, for families, for anyone inshallah that would like to attend um, and like to listen and hopefully inshallah benefit at the same time uh, at the Roots community space which is right around the building uh, we have a special program going on for uh, high schoolers for our young brothers and sisters in the high school uh, age group uh, we have a special program going on there with Mufti Noman uh, Ahmed from Allen uh, Masjid, uh, mashallah, he does a lot of work with the youth in our community in DFW. He comes here quite often to the Qalam campus and to Roots as well. Um, and along with Brother Safi Khan, who runs all the youth programs uh, over on the Roots, uh, at the Roots community space. So we have that special program going on. So inshallah, we encourage if anyone has any high schoolers with them to go there and benefit from the program. It'll be a little bit more interactive and conversational and inshallah, a little more beneficial uh, for our brothers and sisters in that particular uh, age group. So for today's program, we wanted to talk about two things. Um, and both things are connected to the blessed days that we are in. We are in the days of Dhul Hijjah. Now to kind of just state the obvious, and Sheikh Mubin is going to go into a lot more detail about this, but Dhul Hijjah is the 12th month of the lunar calendar. So as most people probably, probably already are familiar with this, but at the same time, I don't want anyone to kind of feel left out from the discussion. We normally are used to keeping track of our time based off of what we call the solar calendar, the Gregorian calendar, the solar calendar. Um, but then there is also a lunar calendar. There is an organization of the year, of the days of the year, according to the cycles of the moon. There are also 12 months, as the Quran says, So there are 12 months, lunar months, within a year. Um, the lunar months, as the Prophet ﷺ explains in an authentic narration of Bukhari and Muslim, Ashahru Hakada, he did it with both hands, I'm holding the mic obviously, Hakada wa Hakada, and then he held up nine fingers, wa Hakada, oh, 
And then he said, oh, hakada, meaning it's either 29 or 30 days. So these 12 months of the lunar calendar are either 29 or 30 days, which when you do the math, it ends up making the lunar calendar about uh, 11 days shorter on average than the solar calendar. And that's why the different special uh, occasions of the Islamic calendar tend to shift throughout the seasons, right? Ramadan, we can probably all remember the time when it was in the summer, now it's in the spring, and so on and so forth, and it's going to keep on moving up into the winter time. So, nonetheless, the month of Dhul-Hijjah is the 12th month of the lunar calendar, and the first 10 days of the month of Dhul-Hijjah are blessed days, and as I said, Sheikh Mubin will talk more about that. Now, these blessed days, one of, the re one of the things that's very relevant and connected to these days and the blessings of these days um, is the story of Ibrahim alayhi salam. And not just exclusively Ibrahim alayhi salam, but Ibrahim alayhi salam and his family. And his family and our spiritual heritage, uh, a huge part of it and one could even argue the entirety of it connects to Ibrahim alayhi salam, right? As I wanted to share here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah An-Nisa, he generally, in ayah number 125, he generally says, that Allah says that who can be more beautiful and excellent in their deen, in their religion, than the one who submits his face, meaning completely submits themselves to Allah, and that person excels in doing good and follows the religion, the way, and the legacy of Ibrahim alayhi salam. And of course, Allah says, Hanifa, Ibrahim alayhi salam, was dedicated in his relationship to Allah, monotheistic, associating no partners to Allah. And then Allah tells us something very beautiful, that God took Abraham as a friend. And then, subsequently, Allah actually says to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in ayah number 16, ثُمَّ أَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْكَ we have commanded you Hanifa, that you must follow the way of Ibrahim alayhi salam and he was again dedicated in his relationship to Allah and he was not from those who associate partners to Allah. Then furthermore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then commands the Prophet in Surah Ali Imran قُلْ Say Announce, proclaim, make it known, Sadaqallahu, God has spoken the truth. All of you must follow the way of Ibrahim alayhi salam. And he was, of course, once again dedicated, committed in his relationship with Allah. And he was not from those who associated partners to Allah. And Allah further tells the Prophet ﷺ in Surah Al-An'am, Surah number 6, Ayah 161, قُلْ Announce to the people, إِنَّنِي هَدَانِي Rabbi ila سُرَاتِ mustaqim." That indeed I, that my Lord has guided me, as far as I am concerned, my Lord has guided me to the straight path. What is the straight path? Deenan qiyaman. Deenan qiyaman, that it is an, a morally upright way of life. Millata Ibrahim Hanifa. And it is the way, the legacy of Ibrahim alayhi salam, once again dedicated 
in his worship of Allah and he was not from those who associated partners to Allah so the Quran is constantly reiterating this where it's saying first of all that a devout person is one who follows the way of Ibrahim. Allah commands the Prophet ﷺ, you, O Muhammad ﷺ, must follow the way of Ibrahim. And then he tells the, commands the Prophet ﷺ to command us to follow in the way of Ibrahim ﷺ. Now, this leads to the obvious question, and that is, what exactly is the way of Ibrahim ﷺ? The first thing that obviously we're told up front here is the way of Ibrahim salam is a way of what we call Tawheed, the oneness of Allah, the worship of the oneness of Allah. The, wor the worship of only Allah, the oneness of Allah, believing only and solely in Allah. However, Ibrahim salam, something very fascinating about his story in the Quran is Allah you know, when the story of Musa salam, which is the most often told story in the Qur'an, the most frequently told story within the Qur'an, the story of Musa salam, the same event is detailed to us from different angles, with different details at different places. And that has its own really fascinating aspect to it, and it demands uh, a very deep study of it. However, what's fascinating about the story of Ibrahim salam is we are told about different events from his life at different places. Different, totally different moments from his life at different places. And they are all very remarkable and insightful and profound. And so I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but I did want to take a few moments to kind of highlight what is the essence of this way of Ibrahim salam that the Qur'an is talking about, that we are being commanded to follow and be committed to. So, the first one that Allah presents to us in Surah Al-Baqarah, and actually I'll start even before that, Surah Al-Anbiya, Surah number 21. In Surah number 21 in Surah Al-Anbiya, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us about that وَلَمَّا بَلَغَ شُدَّهُ وَآتِنَهُ حُكْمًا وَعِلْمًا وَكَذَلِكَ النَّزِلْ مُحْسِنِينَ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us about Ibrahim alayhi salam إِذْ قَالَ لِيَبِهِ وَقَوْمِهِ مَا هَذِهِ التَّمَاثِيلُ الَّتِي أَنْتُمْ لَهَا عَاكِفُونَ He challenged his father and his people who worshipped idols by saying, why do you worship these statues? And they... There's a whole detailed conversation back and forth that, the, that occurs there. And essentially what it concludes in, Surah Al-Anbiya tells us, that when the people had gone out for some kind of a festival, Ibrahim salam stayed back. Another place in the Quran tells us, فَقَالَ إِنِّي سَقِيمٌ فَتَوَلَّوْا عَنْهُمُ He said, I'm not feeling well and everyone departed. When he stayed back, فَجَعَلَهُمْ جُذَاذًا إِلَّا كَبِيرًا لَهُمْ لَعَلَّهُمْ إِلَيْهِ يَرْجِعُونَ He ended up smashing all the idols and he left the largest idol intact to be able to make the people come back and face this reality. That what exactly is happening here? When the people return back and they're astonished, مَنْ فَعَلَ هَذَا بِأَلِهَتِنَا إِنَّهُ لَمِنَ الظَّالِمِينَ قَالُوا سَمِعْنَا فَتَنْ يَذْكُرُهُمْ يُقَالُ لَهُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ قَالُوا فَأْتُوا بِهِ عَلَىٰ أَعْيُنِ النَّاسِ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَشْهَدُونَ They were outraged. Who did this to our idols? A terrible person would do this. And then somebody said that, you know, there's that young man, Ibrahim, he's always 
talking against our idols. So then they say, bring him and let's make an example out of him. Did you do this? He said, said the largest idol is still standing there in one of the narrations. Ibn Kathir ta'ala mentions the narration that Ibrahim had left the tool, the axe or the sledgehammer or whatever it was that he used to smash up the idols. He had left it in the hands or around the neck of the largest idol. So he said, well, why couldn't he have done it? Ask them. These are your gods. Ask them. And for a moment, the Quran says, For a moment, they thought and they reflected and they said, Wait, have we been wrong all along? But then Allah tells us, Then they got turned upside down over again. And then they said, You know that these idols can't talk. And so finally, they say, They say, let's build a fire and let's make an example out of him that we will not tolerate this treatment of our idols. So they build this. Imam Al-Qurtubi mentions from Abdullah bin Mas'ud the narrations that they build this huge fire and they turn it into this kind of campaign. They encourage people to come and throw whatever they have, old furniture, old clothes, whatever they got, into the fire as kind of an offering to the gods. And people start coming from far and wide and feeding the fire until the fire grows into this monster, this beast, that they can't contain. And they realize they can't even get close enough to put Ibrahim in the fire. So then they say, what do we do? So they construct a catapult, a device to launch him into the fire. And they tie him up and they place him in the catapult. And as they're about to launch him into the fire now, Ibrahim by himself, defenseless, tied up, about to be thrown into a fire. And Ibrahim turns to Allah and he makes dua to Allah. And this is the occasion where he made that very powerful dua, Hasbi Allahu wa ni'mal wakil. That God is sufficient for me and he is the best of caretakers. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered his prayer, Qulna ya nar kuni bardan wa salaman ala Ibrahim. Allah says that we commanded the fire, be cool and be peaceful upon Ibrahim alayhi salam. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Abdullah bin Masood says that the ropes that were tied to Ibrahim's hands and feet, they burned in the fire without burning a single spot on his body. The ropes burned away without harming a hair on his head. And so this shows us part of the legacy and the way of Ibrahim salam is this kind of faith and trust and dependence and reliance upon Allah. That Allah will help me and Allah will come through for me. And Allah will take care of me. Allah will not abandon me. He will not forsake me. And we see this echoed in the life of our Messenger ﷺ. Your Lord has not forsaken you. Your Lord has not abandoned you. He's not upset with you. Another lesson of the way of Ibrahim ﷺ in Surah Al-Baqarah is after all this transpires, there's a lot of fervor. And the king, the ruler of that time, the tyrant of that time, 
Some of the narrations from the Israeliyat tell us that his name was Namrud and he ruled the entire civilized world of that time. So he's literally the king of the whole world. And he summons and he says, I need to bring this young man to me. And when he's presented before Ibrahim salam, Allah tells us, Salam tara ila ladhi hajja Ibrahim fi rabbihi. Have you reflected upon the story of the one who argued with Ibrahim about Ibrahim's Lord? And And he was arrogant because God had allowed him to be king. He said, who is your Lord? What is this God you keep preaching about? And Ibrahim said that my Lord is the one who gives life and takes away life, gives death. So he says, well, I can give life and I can give death. And the narrations mention he summoned someone who was on death row, sentenced to death, capital punishment, and he released him. And then he said, grab somebody, random person, innocent bystander off the street and brought him in and had him executed. And he said, look, I give life and I give death. So Ibrahim responds to him, Ibrahim, my Lord is the one who brings the sun from the east every morning, so why don't you bring it from the west? And he was left dumbfounded. And it's a very profound reflection here, but the point that I wanted to extract from here is again, the way of Ibrahim is to have conviction in one's faith. Knowing what you believe. And standing by what you believe. Standing up for what you believe. Confidently stating what you believe. And having that kind of firmness and conviction again echoed in the life of our Messenger ﷺ, where our Messenger ﷺ stood on the mountain of Safa and he said, I invite you all to worship only one Allah and forsake all these idols. And so at this moment in time, Ibrahim ﷺ is speaking the truth even though he, literally the entire world is against him. He's staring down and debating with a man that rules the entire civilized world at that time. And he's unafraid and uncompromising and unabashed about what he believes. Another powerful story in the Quran about the way of Ibrahim salam and what that requires of us, and I'll present this as the last kind of component of this. We've talked about Reliance and faith and a connection to Allah, the dua of Ibrahim. We've talked about the conviction and the faith and the firmness of faith of Ibrahim And the third thing I wanted to mention here, the third component is sacrifice. That if you know what you believe in and you enjoy and you benefit from that connection to Allah, then nothing worth having ever came easy. Everything and anything that you have in your life that is worth something, anything, has a price attached to it. And the more precious, the more valuable, the more cherished it is, usually the higher the price is. And so again, this faith, this conviction, this connection is not free. It will come with sacrifice. Now we don't ask Allah for hardship. But we need to be strong and tough enough to be able to sacrifice when we're called on. 
And Ibrahim alayhi salam, of course, the theme of sacrifice is very well known in his life. Right? The first example of sacrifice. إِذْ قَالَ إِبْرَاهِيمُ رَبِّ جَعَلْ هَذَا الْبَلَدَ آمِنَا وَجْنُبْنِي وَبَنِيَّ أَنَّ عَبُدَ الْأَسْلَامِ رَبِّ إِنَّهُنَّ أَضْلَلْنَ كَثِيرًا مِّنَ النَّاسِ فَاتَّبِعْ That Ibrahim alayhi salam was commanded by Allah that leave your family بِوَادٍ غَيْرِ ذِي زَرْعٍ عِنْدَ بَيْتِكَ الْمُحَرَّمِ That leave your family Hajar and his son Ismail alayhi a child that he has prayed for and waited for and longed for for decades and decades and decades. We don't have an exact age, but the again, the books of Tafsir mentioned some of the different Israeliyat that mentioned that Ibrahim was 70 years old or 80 years old or some even mentioned 100 years old. Allah knows best. But suffice it to say that he was very, very elderly because he talks about this in another place in the Quran in Surah Al-Dhariyat. So he's longed and prayed and waited for this child and he's finally been granted this gift and now he's being commanded by Allah to leave his wife and his child in a valley a valley where nothing grows. And if nothing grows, why does nothing grow? Because there's no water. And if there's no water and nothing grows, there's no animals. There's no animals, there's no people. So essentially, middle of nowhere. <laughs> Sheikh Mubin said Arlington, that's not nice. But, uh, so, um, but in, in this very desolate place, and he's asked to leave, him, leave them there. And... He makes that sacrifice. The Hadith of Bukhari mentions that as he, you know, brings them there, and as he's departing, his wife Hajar says to him, that why are you leaving us here? And Ibrahim has this look of anguish, pain on his face. But he also has his head down and very determined, and she knows him. And she asks him, as a hadith mentions, Allahu Has God commanded you to do this? And he simply nods, yes. And then she responds by saying, Then God shall not forsake us. And we of course know the story that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala miraculously provided the well of Zamzam. And that well of Zamzam provided some nourishment for them, allowed her to feed her baby. But then the birds and animals start to become attracted to the water and some people, refugees, fleeing the floods in Yemen are passing by and they see birds in the air and they stop by and they settle there and a whole community is established there. But the sacrifice of Ibrahim. And then when Ibrahim comes back to visit his family there, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Safat, in Surah number 37, Allah details to us, maybe one of the greatest sacrifices, if not the greatest, that Allah has ever asked any human being to ever make. And that was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands Ibrahim alayhi salam, إِنِّي أَرَى فِي الْمَنَامِ أَنِّي أَذْبَحُكَ فَانْظُرْ مَا ذَاتَرَى يَا بُنَيْ That he tells Ismail alayhi salam, I have been commanded by Allah, to sacrifice you. So what do you think I should do? He says, فَفَعَلْ مَا تُؤْمَرْ 
Satajiduni, insha'Allah, minat sabiri. He says, Oh, my dear father, do what Allah has commanded, what you've been commanded to do, and I will be patient. And then Ibrahim takes him. They both submitted to this test. And he laid him down for the sacrifice. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls out to him and says, Stop. You followed through. You were true. Stop. And then Allah provides an animal to sacrifice. Instead of Ismail salam, and that's what the Prophet salam, said when he was asked, Rasulullah, that this qurbani, the udhiya, the sacrifice we make at Eidul Adha, that what is the purpose, what is the story behind the sacrifice, O Messenger of Allah? And the Prophet salam, said, Sunnatu Abikum Ibrahim. This is the tradition of your forefather Abraham. So we're commemorating that. Sacrifice till today. The hujjaj are going to be commemorating so many of the sacrifices of Ibrahim and his family in these days of hajj. They're doing tawaf, they're praying two rak'ahs at maqam Ibrahim, the station of Ibrahim. They're going to be doing sa'i, walking and running between the mountains of As-Safa and Wal Marwa, right? Where the wife of Ibrahim ran between there looking waters, any kind of you know, nourishment for her child. They're going to be pelting the jamarat with the pebbles, throwing the pebbles at the pillars, at the stone. Commemorating the commitment, the conviction of Ibrahim And the Prophet when when these three things come together, when these three things come together, that you have that faith and conviction, you have that connection, and then you are willing to sacrifice for what you believe in. For that sweetness of faith. Then what happens? You can move mountains. Allah answers your prayers. That Ibrahim salam survived the fire. That Ibrahim salam he raised the foundations of the Kaaba. That Allah sp- sprung forth a, a, a well a source of water that is running till today. Millions of people are there drinking that water right now. And the greatest dua of Ibrahim salam, of all of his duas, Rabbana wa ba'athihim rasulah. That Allah, my progeny and my people that will come after me, send amongst them a messenger. And the Prophet wasallam says in authentic narration in the Sahih, Ana da'watu Abi Ibrahim. I am the answer of the dua of my forefather Ibrahim So this is the way in the legacy of Ibrahim That if we can be committed and connected and we're willing to sacrifice for what we believe, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will answer our prayers and nothing is beyond our reach. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be inspired by the legacy of Ibrahim and be committed and follow the way of Ibrahim Amin ya Rabbil Alameen. I'm going to hand it over to Sheikh Mubin, who's going to talk to us about these 10 blessed days of Dhul-Hijjah. There's a presentation as well that you can follow along with, and it's a very, very beneficial educational resource, so please pay attention. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. <coughs> if we were to look at what Sheikh Bin Nasir just said, 
the life of Ibrahim والسلام, he very beautifully just summarized a lot of the main events. And we were to take just two key points. What would those two key points be? Like if, if two things really stand out, what would those two things be? Number one would be, like, like Sheikh said, the sacrifice of Ibrahim Islam. This is Allah subhanahu wa golden rule. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the reward. And this logic applies to every single thing that we do, every part of our life. The more you put in, the more you get back. And wherever you feel like I'm not getting back enough, the question automatically arises, have I put in enough? If you feel like in a relationship, in a friendship, a relationship with your spouse, relationship with your children, any relationship or at work or in your career or you know in your studies, you feel like I'm not getting back enough. My children don't obey me or my spouse, I don't feel that connection. Then immediately you ask yourself the question, am I putting in enough? And if you turn that up, then what you will get back is even more. And this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's golden rule. Every time you sacrifice, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you more back. And the second thing that we learn from the story of Ibrahim Ibrahim that really sticks out is the commitment that he had to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though it may not have made sense. If you think about it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells Ibrahim wasalam, that call people to perform hajj. Call people to the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And at that time, there was nobody there to hear the call. And in today's day and age, millions and millions of people are there answering that call. So sometimes what you are doing, the efforts that you are putting in the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and fulfilling the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it may seem fruitless. It may seem pointless. Why am I doing this with my parents? They don't understand anyways. Why am I putting this time with my children? They're going to be disobedient anyways. They're going to do what they want anyways. Why am I praying salah? Why am I doing this? And we keep asking this question. And what Ibrahim teaches us, you do your part in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even though it may seem like there is no, it's fruitless, but the fruits will come. The problem is, it's not Amazon. It doesn't come when you decide. It comes when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees it's best for you. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-Hakim. Now, these lessons are so important. These two lessons. The Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He now, like Shaykh said, tells all the hajis, follow the footsteps of Ibrahim alayhi salatu wasalam, so that you can learn these two steps in your life. And the same is for us, the people that stay back. So in the beginning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he talks about the importance of these ten nights, and he takes the oath and he says, Wal-Fajr, Ashr. He takes the oath of these ten days, and he says that, I take an oath by the sanctity of how great these ten days are. And the, the unique thing is, 
Usually before Ramadan, you have Ramadan prep programs. You have one here for the adults. You have one for the kids. You have one for the sisters. And we will prep Ramadan and welcome Ramadan until there's no welcome left. But for Dhul Hijjah, the sad part is only a small group of people prepare for Dhul Hijjah. And those are the people that go for Hajj. For everybody else, we kind of feel like, well, it doesn't really apply to me. I'm not going for Hajj. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here is saying the sanctity and the honor of these 10 days is for everybody. You and I may have not prepared for it, but we are in these blessed 10 days. And if there were to be greater 10 days out of the whole year, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have taken an oath of those 10 days. He would have said, that the t I take an oath by the last 10 days of Ramadan or of Muharram. But the 10 days that he, cho he chooses is these right here. And we ask ourselves, why? And the answer to that is because the lessons from the story of Ibrahim والسلام, are that important. Now, we start off with a very basic hadith of the Prophet If you haven't performed Hajj, then what are you waiting for? Simple. Last week in Dallas, it was a very heart-wrenching week. We all know about the two 17-year-olds that didn't wake up. That same day in Frisco, we had the janazah of a little baby. So many times we put off Hajj and we think that when we get older, Hajj is for the elderly. Why should I go now? You ask somebody who's in their 20s and 30s, where do you want to go? And the answer would be Hawaii, Alaska. Where else have you been? Um, but you ask them, would you like to go Hajj? And the answer is, why? I'm going to do that when I get old. And the reality is, Hajj brings a change into your life. And you may need that change later on, but more than that, I need that change right now. I need that change in my 20s. I need that change in my 30s. And that's why it's important that you go to Hajj immediately. I can't tell you how many times that upon on the Qalam Hajj group, we've taken people and there were elderly people the other and they said to us, I'm envious of you youngsters. Not us. But... I'm envious of you youngsters. Why? Because we can't do the same thing that these youngins can do. You can go and do tawaf as much as you want, but for us, oh my goodness, my back. You got to get a wheelchair. And that's where you realize Hajj is not for the elderly, but Hajj is for people like us who need that change, who can utilize it and maximize it. Now, the very famous hadith where the Prophet says that a hajj that is done without committing sin, done without any type of argument, any type of indecency, there's no reward for it except that you will return back like the day that your mother gave you birth. Imagine you, like what that means is as many as times that you wronged the relationship between you and Allah, if you wrong the relationship between you and me, 
you and I, our relationship, if you've wronged me and if you've wronged me, and I were to tell you, hey, if you do this one thing for me, everything in the past is clear. Imagine if your wife were to say that to you. Imagine if your parents were to say it to you. Imagine if you're like best friends and you do everything that you've done. It's all gone if you do this one thing for me. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that everything that you've done in the past, bygones are bygones. We will start fresh. But you got to show me you want it. Leave everything behind. Leave everything behind and come to me. Spend some time at my house. Spend some time following the footsteps of my friend, Ibrahim Take some qualities that he had. Now, the very famous hadith and <clears throat> where the Prophet Rasulullah was known as not just as a mercy to mankind, but as a mercy to the world. Somebody who cared about every single person, how can I get this person and take them to Jannah. But the Prophet says a person who has the financial needs and who's capable of doing Hajj, but doesn't do Hajj, then Allah subhanahu doesn't care what faith they pass away on, whether they're Christian or they're Jew. And in the first hadith that you see on the screen right now, the Prophet says, hasten to do Hajj immediately. Why? Because if a 17-year-old cannot wake up from sleep in Dallas, then what guarantee that you have that you're going to do Hajj when, you, when you're in your 40s and 50s? There's no guarantee. And you ask yourself, is this something that I can push off? And if I'm saving for that, you know, ideal wedding that shadi at crystal banquet or some you know if i'm saving for a tesla or a house in castle hills where if I, if this is what i'm saving for then all of that i can afford to push back the one thing i cannot afford is to push back this why because my relationship with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is on the line that he could be so upset with me that he said, you know, I don't care if you die as a Muslim, Christian, Jew, whatever. So that's number one. For the lessons of the people that are here is to understand that if you haven't performed Hajj, go and perform Hajj. Now we look at a list of things to do for every single person. This is for all of us, not the Hajis. Because think about it. In two weeks from now, when the hujjaj will come back, they will come back wiped away from sin. And you and, I, you and I will greet them and we will have a mountain of sin on our shoulders. We will congratulate them of being wiped away while we meet them with this dirt and filth all over ourselves. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, hold up, I got you all as well. I'll take care of you too. And so he gives us these things to do so that you and I can wash away, wash our sins away and can be forgiven in these days. And the first is to fast in these 10 days of Dhul-Hijjah. The, the first nine days of Dhul-Hijjah, Rasulullah says, there is no desire to act more than fasting in these 10 days of Dhul-Hijjah. And then he says, the fast of each of these days is equivalent to a full year. 
He then says that worship in these nights is equal to Layl Qadr. Now you ask yourself, why have, I been, why have I been sleeping on this? If fasting for nine days can get me the reward of nine years and worshiping for one of these nights can give me the reward of you know, Layl Qadr, which is of course greater than a thousand months, then this is where we have to realize that to utilize this time. Then the next thing, so number one, fast in these days. Number two, avoid sin. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Tawbah says, do not oppress yourself by committing sins, by wronging, by doing bad things, by doing, by doing indecent things in these days. And you know, I look at this, that in the month of Ramadan, we all bring a change into our life. But the unique thing about change is change never lasts. It slowly begins to taper down. As much as I would love to be super Muslim and super father and super husband 365 days a year, it doesn't work like that. I bring that change into my life and slowly, slowly, it begins to fade away. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala once again... He's, it's as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, look, it's been two months and maybe the effect that you had of Ramadan is the change that you brought in is fading away. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, let's turn it back up. You left sinning in Ramadan, let's do that again. And to avoid sinning in these days of Dhul Hijjah. Now, on Tuesday, Tuesday is a day that the Prophet says that there is no other day that Allah forgives people more than Tuesday. Why? Because this is the ninth of Dhul Hijjah, the day of Hajj. So if in your calendar, if you have that Monday, I'm going to spend with my children. If you have, you know, on Thursday, I'm going to come to, you know, um, heart work or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. If you have that in your calendar, this is what you need to do. You need to go and put Tuesday, the 27th of June, I need to get forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because millions of people will be forgiven. Imagine how sad it would be if everybody around you got that forgiveness except for you. The person next to you right now, the person to your right, the person to your left, the person ahead of you, because millions of people are being forgiven to the point that the Prophet says that there is no other day that Allah subhanahu forgives people like the day of Arafah. So put that in your calendar on this day Everything else can wait. I'm going to block this day out to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and somehow earn my forgiveness. And this starts with fasting in the month of fasting on this day. And the Prophet says that a person that fasts on the day of Arafah, it wipes away the sins of the previous year as well as the upcoming year. 
And then Rasulullah he teaches us the takbirat that should be said on the day of Arafah. Right. So now on this next slide we have um, the hadith that we mentioned before that there is no day that Allah SWT frees his servants from the hellfire like the day of Arafah. That he draws near to us. And then he, he praises us, the people that worship him, and he says, what do they want? They want my forgiveness? They got it. They want paradise? They got it. So, and you think about it, on the day of Arafah, the day of Arafah is so important that Allah SWT blocks off a day before that as well for the people that do Hajj. On the 8th, Monday, Allah Subhanahu says that Tuesday is going to be so important that I need y'all to be in game mode. You can't be slacking. It's game time, fourth quarter, you have to be serious. And that's why Allah Subhanahu prepares the, the Hujjaj and says, to make sure you're serious, go to Mina on the 8th. And that tells you how important the day is. So on, on the other side of the planet, there will be these people that will be standing there and making dua nonstop and praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala extends that courtesy out to us as well, asking us, what do you want so I can give it to you? My mother, rahimullah, she used to tell us that when you go to Arafah, call me. And as you're leaving Arafah, call me. And we will be in Arafah outside of our tent in our ihram making dua. And she, we'd ask her, why do you tell us to call her you? And she said that while you were there, I was here. And the wukuf that you had there, I spent my wukuf here making dua as well. And that makes you think that that practice should be done by all of us. Because if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just giving Jannah away, why should we be asleep at that time? Why should we be doing anything else? So this is the virtue of the day of Arafah. Now, the Hujjaj, their actions are so beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the Prophet he actually tells the Sahaba that those of you that can't go and do Hajj, imitate the Hujjaj. So the Hujjaj in the state of Ihram will not cut their nails. The Hujjaj in the state of Ihram won't cut their hair. I mean, we're lucky that we don't have, you know, we don't have restrictions of perfume and cologne or it'd be pretty nasty up in here. Um, but the Prophet ﷺ says, if you're doing Qurbani, then in the days of Zul-Hijjah, the Hujjaj are not, we... Everybody, if you're doing Qurbani, then you shouldn't be cutting your nails. You shouldn't be trimming or you know, plucking your hair. So this is something that everyone can um, carry out. And then again, this is the hadith where Rasulullah says, if anyone of you cites the moon of Dhul-Hijjah and you intend to sacrifice, then they should leave these things out. Now, the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet ﷺ said that there is no day in which the good deeds are more greater or more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than these 10 days. So what should you do? So this is where the Prophet ﷺ makes life so easy upon us. 
Imagine if somebody says, look, this is the reward. Find your own way to get it. This is what's waiting for you over there. Now you're stuck in this maze and you got to find your way. The Prophet says, I will show you how to get that. The reward of these 10 days are so great and it's so easy to get because all you need to do is say, number one, afdalu dhikr la ilaha illallah. He says, increase your tahleel. Number two, increase your takbir. Praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number three, increase your tahmeed. Your alhamdulillah, be, be, show your gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in these days, these, these three things are the dhikr that should be done. Now the sacrifice, Shaykh mentioned the sacrifice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loved of Ibrahim alayhi salatu wasalam, and he made it wajib upon every person that can afford it. To the point that the Prophet says that a person who sacrifices an animal, they will be given the reward based off the weight of the animal and based off the hair of the animal, the wool of the animal. For every single fiber, you get ajr for it. Now, sometimes you see the Prophet who was a mercy to mankind, changing his tone. So first he says, there's so much reward based off the hair, the fiber, the sacrifice. And understand, it's not the meat or the blood that reaches Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but it's your taqwa that reaches Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The taqwa that Ibrahim had, that he was willing to put everything for, you know, the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had told him to sacrifice Ismail And I know some parents kind of wish for that same dream. How many you want? I'll give you all five. All right. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here is saying that all you got to do to bring this quality into your life, baby steps. Sacrifice an animal. But sometimes the Prophet sallallahu changes his tone. Here, the first hadith, he talks about the mercy and the reward of it. But if you look at the next slide, and this part's scary, the Prophet says, whoever can afford it, you have the money to make the sacrifice. And you know, nowadays, it's like $60, $70, get a, a part done in, in overseas. And the meat, they go and send, you know, the complete meat is given to people that are needy of it. Um, Not to move too far away. One of my relatives, every year he goes and takes care of um, people's udhiya. They send the money. He goes, I went to a, a locality that they had no idea what to do with the meat. That the kid actually, when I gave him the meat, he took it and started chewing on it. Because they don't know what meat is. And it's not by choice that I choose to be vegan. But they have no idea. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making it mandatory upon us that you want to share what you have. But in this hadith, the Prophet says, if you have the means, whether it's a couple hundred dollars of sacrificing an animal here, sending it home, at least do something. And if you don't do it, 
then the Rasulullah says, then that person should not be allowed to come and pray Eid Salah. Don't be here Wednesday at 8 o'clock. Because what are you celebrating? What do you do? Right? It's like that little kid who ate all day, but iftar time is on the dustakan ready to chow down. What are you hungry for? You haven't done anything. And this is what the Prophet is saying. If you're not going to make this small sacrifice, then why are you coming to pray Eid Salah? Now, in the next slide, this verse of Surah Hajj, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, and remember the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala throughout the appointed days. And this is the takbirat that we read after, and they're starting from the ninth, the fajr of the ninth, and it goes to the asr of the thirteenth. While the hujjaj are there pelting shaitan. So these are the days, the ninth, they're in Arafah, tenth, the pelting of shaitan starts. And when the pelting of shaitan starts, stops, Allah subhanahu wa says, now you can stalk my takbir. But until then you have to. So over there, if you think about it, over there the hujjaj are pelting shaitan. And over here Allah subhanahu wa is saying, to get a little bit of that, praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't go and find the shaitan here and start pelting it. But praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that pelting of shaitan is such a beautiful act. You know, I remember when I went to Hajj my first time, it was 1990. There was just one pillar of, of the Jamarat. Three of them, just one pillar. And my father took me to do ziyara, go look at it. And on this pillar, somebody took a marker, and this person was like a, mashallah. On the pillar, he wrote, Amrika. <laughs> That's it. He didn't have to write anything else. And, uh, and here I am like 30 odd years later, and remembering that guy was a legend. Um, but the idea behind it is, not throwing a stone at a pillar or not throwing a stone on a wall, but that stone is actually coming back and hitting us. It's like what Allah Iqbal said. Allah Iqbal said that I kept wiping the mirror, trying to clean the mirror, and I failed to realize the filth was in me. But I didn't want to clean myself. And that pelting of shaitan is actually pelting of our own nafs in the demons that we hide within us. The shayatin that we hide, the weaknesses that we have, and the word demon may seem so strong and heavy, but the reality is we all have things that we hide from people. That If it would be apparent, you would run away. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa has this pelting of shaitan. And we finish off with this final slide, the sunnahs of Eid, and inshallah, qalam will send their usual you know, uh, post with all the sunnahs of Eid that will give you a reminder. But, of course, that is waking up early in the morning using the miswak, which tells you, don't come with bad breath. The Prophet was very particular about smell. Very particular about smell. And why? 
because he wanted people to feel comfortable even at that level. There should be no reason that somebody takes a step away from you, even through like hygiene. The, number three, take a ghusl. Number four, wear the best of clothes that's available. Right? Whatever is available, don't go out, you know, special ease shopping. Um, apply some itar, um, not to eat. So the first Eid al-Fitr, we eat before we go, we have some dates. But for this one, delay the eating until after. And of course, it's best if you can delay it to do your own, your udhiyah. And then recite the takbir of Eid. Um, and the Prophet wasallam he would change his route when he would go um, one way um, to the Eid prayer. Then he would take a second route uh, back home. So the, these are some things that each and every one of us, the people that are staying here in Dallas, things that we can do in these days of Dhul-Hijjah to, to create a season, a feeling. The reason why we don't feel it, and it's only for a particular small group, because that vibe of Hajj hasn't been created. The atmosphere of Hajj hasn't been created. But if everybody is fasting, if people are fasting and you see that we're cutting back on our sins and we're praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala more and we're particular of our, you know, um, our takbirat and our, you know, the sunnahs that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught us, that's when you realize that this season of Dhul-Hijjah becomes special. So these are some lessons that we wanted to kind of share with everybody that we can inshallah implement for the remainder days of the uh, first 10 days of the Hijjah. We had about um, 20 minutes or so inshallah before we break to allow people to get ready for Salat al-Maghrib inshallah. Um, we'll, we'll stop at 8.30 so that people have some time to be able to prepare for Salah inshallah. Um, but for the next 20, 25 minutes, wanted to see if anyone had any questions uh, and again, just a disclaimer, can't really promise that we'll be able to, uh, or at least myself, I'll be able to answer the question, but we'll definitely try our best, inshallah. So if there were any questions anyone had. What is the purpose of tambari, like going from one Very good. Um, I'll ask Sheikh Mubin to also comment, but um, so the hadith doesn't mention a specific reason behind it which we would call in illah, but as far as the wisdom, the hikmah of it is concerned, different scholars have written different things. Ibn Hajar, rahimahullah ta'ala, in Fathul Bari, Imam al-Nawawi, in al-Sharh of Sahih Muslim, some of these scholars, some of the wisdoms or that they mention are the benefits of it. Number one, uh, they mention that لِإِظْهَارِ شَوْكَةِ الْمُسْلِمِينَ Because the entire ummah, the Prophet ﷺ, you know, in an, in an authentic narration, he says, no one should remain behind from the Eid prayer. Bring everyone, the elderly, the children, bring everyone. Um, and so the entire ummah is gathering and moving. And then as Sheikh Mubin detailed, people are wearing their nicest clothes, they look nice, they they uh, are happy, they're saying takbir, you know, they're celebrating. So what that does is it creates greater exposure about the beauty of Islam. 
and that particularly is relevant in our instance, in our case. Um, another wisdom that is also mentioned is that as we are basically moving and going and saying takbirat and praising and glorifying and thanking Allah by covering a different route, um, even the earth will testify on our behalf. So those are some of the benefits that are mentioned for number eight. Um, the question, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll try to repeat the questions. The question is that um, the, the preference, or is there even a preference, about the udhiyah, that someone doing it locally themselves, by hand, going and doing it, as opposed to maybe contributing it, donating it through... Um, either overseas or particularly the way that happens a lot of times is through the different relief agencies or humanitarian organizations. Um, so there's, there's not really any kind of a directive in the Quran or from the Prophet about which one is quote-unquote more preferable. There's a whole discussion in usul about do the actions of the Prophet ﷺ dictate any kind of a ruling? That the Prophet ﷺ did it this way, does that make it mandatory to do it that way or not? The general idea is no. Of course, it's good, but it doesn't make it mandatory to do it that way. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, he always went every Eid al-Adha and he did the sacrifice himself. He performed it with his own hand, he did it himself. But at the same time, another argument can also be made about need, the need of it. Sheikh Mubin was just sharing one anecdote, and there are hundreds and thousands of such stories and anecdotes um, about the severity of the need in different places. And so someone is addressing where the need is, where the greater need is. There's also the idea about, you know, one's um, dollar going a little bit further, right? That the same amount of money uh, that would cover one sacrifice here would cover multiple sacrifices in other parts of the world. So these are the merits of both sides. And But doing it yourself, you're kind of more closely doing it in accordance with how the Prophet ﷺ did it. Doing it yourself, there's also the experiential part of it that... You know, I know people who have been, who are, you know, well into their adult life and they've never, never once, they've been offering, they've been giving the udhiyah for a decade or more. They've never experienced it themselves, right? So there's merits on both sides. But while I might have a personal preference to speak, purely and technically from the text and from the book, so to speak, um, there's no outlined preference. It's really up to the person and the person's discretion. The important thing to remember is, if I can afford it, I need to make sure that I take care of it, right? And just like we say about zakat al-fitr, 
which, you know, the, the, the 10, 12, $15, whatever it is recommended in your community that we have to pay before Salat al-Eid and we keep emphasizing it and then the morning of Eid, lo and behold, uh, people are coming for their Eid prayer as like Eid prayer starting and they're frantic because they're like, oh, where can I put in my fitr? My, my, my zakat al-fitr, where, where, where's the box I can drop it in? It's like, no, this had to reach the people. You know, so similarly, um, the important thing to remember is make sure you take care of it. If you're going to be doing it yourself, make whatever arrangements need to be made. You know, made. Um, if you're going to be donating it or contributing it overseas or through a relief agency or humanitarian organization, they need to have the funds in advance to be able to then carry out the sacrifice in a timely fashion. So the important thing is take care of it, but in terms of which one is more preferable, it's really hard to say, and it just depends on the person, their preference. Wallahu a'lam. So the question is that um, how many sacrifices can you make, right? Should you only make one sacrifice or you have multiple sacrifices? And that kind of leads on, can you make sacrifice on behalf of somebody else? Um, and who can you make sacrifice on behalf of? Um, so how many can you make on you know, yourself as much as you like? Like Sheikh said, you know, your money might go further um, if you do overseas. And to add that on to what Sheikh said earlier, maybe you have a few that you do overseas and you do one here yourself. That way you get both the experience. And the purpose of both the experience is instead of coming home and going back to sleep, you're actually doing something on Eid. You know, to make it feel like Eid. Um, for your children to feel Eid as well. Um, otherwise, for them, it's nothing. What are we celebrating? And what is a celebration? It's, it's, there is no celebration. So that's why, if you can do a few overseas, and where you know people can benefit a lot from it, for it, and you know that might be cheaper, and maybe do one here. Um, you know, you could do it on behalf of. Other people, the Prophet says, the person that encourages another person to do a good deed gets the same reward as a person that does it without anything being decreased from that person. So you can do it on behalf of other people. Um, so that's fine as well. So the, the number-wise, as much as you like, um, you know, uh, but the mandatory amount is, of course, the one. Um, one of my favorite narrations... Uh, is a hadith in Bukhari in which it mentions that the Prophet he sacrificed two rams, um, not the pickup truck, the animal, right? So it's Texas, people don't know. Um, but the Prophet sacrificed two animals, like imagine two goats, right? Two rams. And then he did one and he said, this is on behalf of me and my family. And then he sacrificed the second one and he said, this is on behalf of every single person in my ummah that will not be able to offer a sacrifice for themselves. And it's um, one of my favorite narrations, very, very touching moment of the Prophet remembering us and thinking about us. Yes. 
This is a, a, a very important issue um, that requires a little bit of clarification. Um, the mandate of sacrifice, there is a difference of opinion. So this is the part that's going to get kind of technical, but stay with me, bear with me. There is a difference of opinion, a classical difference of opinion, about how much sacrifice is required. So the majority opinion the opinion of the um, scholars of the Maliki school, Imam Malik, the Shafi'i school, Imam Ahmad, the majority opinion is that the sa only one sacrifice, one sacrifice means either a smaller animal, like a goat or a sheep or a ram, etc., cetera, um, or uh, larger animals have seven shares within them. So one seventh of a larger animal. A larger animal would mean something like a cow or a camel, a buffalo, etc. So that's one sacrifice. So big animals like cows and camels, they have seven portions in them, or smaller animal like a goat, a sheep, etc. The majority of his opinion is, and that's why a lot of folks from certain backgrounds, you know, uh, folks from West Africa, from East Africa, uh, from Egypt, from Malaysia, from Indonesia, from like many parts of the world where they practice primarily like Shafi'i fiqh or Maliki fiqh, what they are familiar with is that only one sacrifice needs to be made per household. For a home, an entire home, no matter how many people live in that home, Right, so in like for instance, in my home, myself, my wife, my three kids, there will only be one sacrifice required. If we can afford, one sacrifice. The other opinion is the opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa, the Hanafi school. So folks that are from the background, whether it's Turkey or uh, the subcontinent, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc., these parts of the world, what they're a little more familiar with is, that opinion is, one sacrifice needs to be offered on behalf of every adult who qualifies to pay zakat. So if you are a Muslim and you are an adult, you have come of age. And number three, you have finances to the extent, to the level that you have to pay zakat, nisab. Right? That's a whole other discussion. Typically what it amounts to is then you have to keep up with the, the calculations because it's based off of the price of gold and, or, or silver. But it's round about usually about $3,000. If you have $3,000 worth of savings, all right, or assets, or inventory in your business, and according to the Hanvi school, or even gold and silver, jewelry, right, um, then you qualify to pay zakat. And if you, as an adult, qualified to pay zakat, you have to offer one sacrifice. So now going back to that example, in my home, myself, my wife, and my three kids, okay? So I qualify to pay zakat, my wife qualifies to pay zakat, so that's two sacrifices happening from our home. My children, let's say, two of my children are not of age, so they're minors. My one child maybe, let's say, is a teenager, is of age, but does not have finances, to qualify to pay zakat, so that one child would be not would be exempt. 
So according to the Hanafi position, there will be two sacrifices in my home, mine and my wife's. Does that make sense? It's a little bit kind of technical, kind of tricky, but again, either one sacrifice on behalf of the whole household, that is a legitimate position, and many of the Sahaba practice that, or a sacrifice on behalf of every adult who has the finances to qualify to pay for to, to qualify to pay zakat, they have to offer a sacrifice, um, and that is also a, uh, a position practiced by many of the companions of the Prophet sallallahu So Allahu Akbar. Make sense? According to one opinion. Yeah, but, but if somebody comes from a background or they're more comfortable with or they've been taught um, that it's one on behalf of the household, that is totally legitimate. Yeah. Yes. Go ahead, Ray. So the question is that if a person owes money, um, they're in debt, which is pretty much every single person in America, <laughs> um, should they go to Hajj or should they t pay off the debt first? And, um, you know, there are people that have gone to Hajj so that kind of answers that question right there. Um, and what I would base my, my opinion is that if that debt is mandatory, where you have no other option, then take care of that first. But of course, we have options to choose a, you know, a lower range car or a lower range house. Um, and there is no, you know, other way except for taking a mortgage out. Then I wouldn't include a, a home mortgage or a car mortgage in this, but a debt that needs to pay immediately, there's no other option, then pay that first. Um, but the ongoing mortgages that we have, that's a part of life now. Um, so don't let that be a hindrance because when will a person be debt free? Um, and then if they go to Hajj, then that question comes up. At that point, do you need change? You, you need the du'as to get out of debt. Um, so you know, inshallah, Make the sacrifice now in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help you pay off those debt. Inshallah. Yeah, um, so the question is about Ibrahim alayhi salam, the story in Surah Al-Anbiya where he's thrown into the fire and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protects him. Ya narkuni bardan wa salaman ala Ibrahim, that our fire be cool and peaceful upon Ibrahim alayhi salam. Um, what exactly was the aftermath of that? You know, what was the reaction? How was that, you know, handled by people? And how did people react to that? We don't have a lot of confirmed narrative there. Um, there's some difference of opinion about the sequencing. 
Um, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala does say that that conversation, that kind of debate, that face-off with the king that's mentioned in Surah Al-Baqarah was in the aftermath of that because it caused such a fervor in the kingdom that people were talking about this. People were kind of, you know, freaked out by this, frankly, so that the king then demanded to, like, see this young man. Um, and then that led to that discussion and conversation, uh, that debate, rather. Um, but we don't have a lot of very specific, like, exactly what happened. Did he walk out of the fire? And then what did people do? And we don't have all of those details, right? Um, and within that is kind of a finer point. Because that's, that's something that's relevant to a lot of the stories in the Qur'an. Musa salam is traveling through the desert. Um, with his family, it mentions right? He's traveling with his family and they're camping out somewhere, stopping along the way. And he says, I think I see a fire in the distance. And then he goes there and of course he receives prophethood and revelation and talks to Allah. And then next thing you know, and the next thing you know, it just cuts to Musa salam standing in the court of Fir'aun, you know, challenging him. Now what happened? Did he go back? What did he tell his family? What did his family say? How did it all? Did he take his family back home? Did he bring them along with it? It doesn't give us those details. And we repeatedly see that with so many other stories of the Qur'an. And the point that the scholars like Imam al-Razi ta'ala makes this point that... Because the Qur'an isn't a storybook, it's not a novel. It's not even a historical text, like it's, that's not its purpose, it's not its function. Um, but rather the Qur'an, as the Qur'an tells us itself, The Qur'an is guidance. So what the Qur'an does is, it goes into these stories, these narratives, these miraculous events, these remarkable people, it takes a look at them, and it highlights to us something that provides guidance, that provides wisdom, that provides inspiration and direction uh, and purpose, and then it moves on. Because it doesn't want us to, as you could say, get lost in the sauce, right? It doesn't want us to get distracted. It doesn't want us to get involved with all the other you know, details, uh, the, the, the minutiae of things, but rather it wants us to remain focused on the guidance, and that's why immediately, subhanAllah, it cuts to a dua. It shares us the story of Musa, uh, Ibrahim, um, somebody's going to have to help me. I'm kind of drawing a blank. Was that? They tried to mess with the friend of God. So God ruined them. You see that? It gets to the point. So that's something really remarkable about the Quran. Very good. Yeah, I know. It's been a while since Ramadan, right? So the hafad are kind of rusty. All right. You know, if, if I were to add into what Sheikh said, um, the story of Ibrahim, you see one point 
multiple times, but Allah subhanahu wa mentions it once. And that is فَبُهِيْتَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرَ So, when Ibrahim said, hey, ask the big one, they were speechless. They knew they were wrong. After this kid walks out of the fire, they were speechless. They knew they were wrong. After he says to Namrud that my Lord brings the sun from the east, you try to bring him from the west. He knew. But that's the part that when ignorance gets to a person, they become blinded. And Allah SWT says that don't they have hearts that they see with? So this theme with Ibrahim, that was like his punchline. He was really good at just winning arguments. And it wasn't about winning arguments, but he was able to show the truth as truth. That nobody can deny it, but then they were blind. So it's that same theme that's carried on, but Allah subhanahu mentioned it once, but we see the same thing all over. Okay. Any other questions? Mariam, you had one? Very good. Again, it's hard to... Okay, so the question is that uh, the story of Ibrahim from Suratul An'am that talks about him um, kind of teaching the people by saying, do you th people think that stars could be God? Do you think moon, the moon could be God? Do you think the sun could be God? It wasn't really Ibrahim he himself going through that process. He's the prophet of God. He's the friend of Allah. He's Khalilullah. He knows. But he was more so kind of doing this exercise with the people. Do you actually think stars could be God? He said, okay, then wait here. Wait. Right? Like when, you know, when the stars then are no longer visible, he said, how could that be God? And then do you guys actually think the moon could be God? Like he walked them through that whole exercise. Where does this kind of fit into the timeline of his life? It's very, very difficult to say. However, through the Israeliyat, the Judaica, some of the narrations from the scriptures of the past, what some of the scholars like Ibn Kathir and others have kind of maybe constructed a you know, potential timeline, um, says that this would have been prior to the events that were detailed in Surah Al-Anbiya where he smashed the idols. This is prior to that. Before that. That he tried to do this conversation with the people. He did this whole presentation, this whole exercise with the people. And when the people still were like, nah. Then he took things the next step. Then he took the next step. Took things further by smashing up the idols and by saying, now answer that. Right, so Allahu Alam, but again, Allah knows best. And last question, go ahead. Yeah, the the 
so the question is that the people of Ibrahim السلام, who worshipped these idols and did all of this, threw them in the fire, does the Quran necessarily mention specifically what happened to them? Like some of the perished nations, destroyed peoples that Allah talks about in the Quran, like Qawm Ad, Qawm Thamud, Qawm, the people of Madian, etc. Allah doesn't tell us explicitly what transpired with them, but it summarily just tells us, فَجَعَلْنَاهُمُ الْأَخْسَرِينَ we made them completely ruined. And that's a Quranic terminology for they, they committed aggression and transgression against a friend of God. And that usually does not end well. That that's kind of the Quranic verbiage for people being destroyed. Allah knows best and may Allah protect us all. Um, but again, to kind of end on a higher point, inshallah, um, Sheikh Mubin talked to us about how blessed these days are. What a remarkable opportunity this is. So let's all of us, I'm talking to myself here, let's all of us um, try to push ourselves a little bit harder, go a little bit further. Um, you know, we're having this conversation on a Saturday night. Um, tomorrow, Sunday, even working folks, we have a day off from work. It's a great opportunity to fast. A uh, great opportunity to pray and worship, read Quran, remember Allah, etc., etc. Um, so let's try to do that. Um, especially a lot of our kids, you know, the the some of the older kids, they're off from school. So again, it's an opportunity for them to be able to do a little bit more on Monday, and th then maybe normally they'd be able to because of school. And then Tuesday, as Sheikh Mubin told us, we should all have our alarms set. Uh, for fasting, number one, this is the day of Arafah, right? The Prophet ﷺ was very, very, very particular. And he, in a number of narrations, some of the Sahaba ﷺ say that this is the most blessed day of the entire year, the day of Arafah. As Sheikh Mubin detailed, millions of people being freed from the fire of hell. The most blessed night, Laylatul Qadr, the most blessed day is Yom Arafah. So let's make sure that we fast on that day together collectively as, a fa as families, as a community, as groups and circles of friends. Uh, it'll be a very blessed opportunity, inshallah, bi-nillah. Um, and then, of course, you know, Wednesday is the day of Eid. Um, and uh, just as, a, as an announcement, inshallah, we will be having Salat al-Eid and the normal kind of, um, you know, festivities that we uh, do here at the Qalam campus on Wednesday for Eid al-Adha, inshallah. Takbirat will begin at 9 a.m. We'll pray at 9.30 a.m. And then after that until noon or so, inshallah, we'll have, you know, uh, just some things for the whole family to kind of do together and hang out here. The uh, cafe will be open at Roots, inshallah, so families can go get some, you know, coffee and drinks and snacks and hang out and spend good time together, inshallah. Uh, so we look forward to uh, welcoming everyone uh, for Eid al-Adha, inshallah. Bismillah. Barakallahu feekum. Jazakumullah khairan. We'll have adhan in about five minutes. So request everyone to, inshallah, prepare for Salat al-Maghrib, and then we'll pray in about... Um, uh, 10 minutes, inshallah. Jazakum Allah khairan.